Yeah, well, the the point the the training is kind of done. So even if you're even if you're still mentally tired or or physically tired, you've you've had those three days. So man up and do the next session. Like so, <laughs> you might feel like you're recovered, but you you're you should be able to go again. Like so, it's and then for me because even the the easy days were so hard because Rob was just he he was cruising five minute k's and or four. 450k in training and I was just so motivated going to my first Olympics I wanted to be doing everything with him so <laughs> probably my my easy days or what he was calling his easy recovery days I was still like pinned pinned to my collar like bait from the day before trying to keep up with him so it was like three weeks of absolute fatigue. That my friend was Brendan Boyce and this is the Inspirational Runners Podcast. Hey everyone, hope you all had a great Christmas and you're feeling as bloated as I am. For those who don't know, my name is Robbie Marsh and I'm your host, so welcome to the podcast. Something totally different this week, we've got Irish Athletics Endurance Athlete of the Year, race walker Brendan Boyce. He talks about his recent success in coming sixth in the World Athletic Championships in the 50k event. He is our current national champion and with PBs of 1 hour 24 minutes and 28 seconds for 20k which is around a 6 minutes 48 minute per mile um, race walking which is phenomenal and 3 hours 48 minutes and I think 55 seconds for a 50k which is his main event. Brendan has already competed in London 2012 and Rio 2016 Olympics and with Tokyo closing in he really is coming into the form of his life. Before we start, I'd just like to give our sponsors Born to Run a quick mention. The next race is on the 4th of January in Tonymore Forest Park near Newcastle County Down. A great race to shake off some of that Christmas turkey. I'm hoping to hobble around it myself, so it'd be awesome to see everyone there. This coming Saturday, Tonymore Forest Park, Newcastle County Down. Absolutely beautiful course. It's without further delay, I give you Brendan Boyce. Thanks for calling in anyway, I appreciate that. So anyway, um, I could congratulate you on loads of things, but your Irish National Athletics Award um, for the Endurance Athlete of the Year, that must have been pretty amazing. Yeah, it was nice to finally get it because I've kind of uh, been nominated, I think, for the last seven years. (laughs) It's a bit of a tough category to win. I was delighted to finally get it. Yeah, but it does show the sort of change in times as well, that they recognise how much endurance is actually in the sport of um, race walking. Um, yeah, I suppose like those 20, 20k and 50k are the only, only two international distances really. Okay, so <clears throat> just to bring it into perspective so people have a good understanding, what is your PB for 20k? Um, yeah, I did, I did both my PBs in the last year actually, so the Back in April, uh, it was one twenty four thirty one for 20K. That's mental. Like, so in pace times, that's around 6, just below 6.50, I think, like 6.40, 48. Uh, well, I, I always work in kilometers. Yeah, so, <laughs> so that's what it is. Like, so one twenty four thirty eight. that'll be just under, it'll just be under 6.50 a mile pace. Like, that's criminal. So people don't really relate that you know when they hear about race walkers and we know you look very quick and dynamic um but that actual pace like my pb in my half marathon distance was 652 pace so 130 say 
And I, I had my eyeballs hanging out during that race, running as hard as I could. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, it would be would be around yeah, about the equivalent of a, a one thirty half marathon. The fifty k PB then. Um, yeah, so I did that in May this year as well. So that was um, three forty eight thirteen, I think it was at the European Cup. So like that, that's that's a criminal pace for race walking. Like that's around. Sorry, I I never even anticipated kilometers and miles. Like that's around a, a seven twenty pace. Um, I'm not sure we're gonna get scrutinized after this here for not doing my maths properly and not understanding the kilometers. But you know, my best run I ever did at twenty two miles was seven twenty pace. I'll never forget that day how good of a form I was and I was running flat out. And <laughs> you're race walking the same pace as, pace as that like. One thing jumps out of my head is um, in our workplace, we have a and one strict rule they have is you are not allowed to run on site. <laughs> Everybody rushes out of work, especially on a Friday afternoon at one o'clock to get to their cars. Like what an advantage that would be. Oh, yeah. Best I used to always get to the, the food at first. And school <laughs> There's no running in the corridors. What background did you have then from a school's perspective? Was there any type of sport in athletics? Um, I would have started before school. Like I would have been into athletics. I can't remember when I wasn't because I'm, I'm the youngest of seven kids and my all my brothers and sisters would have kind of been into athletics in some shape or form. So I was kind of dragged along to all these competitions at a very young age and doing the, the toddler races and stuff like that. I remember, I can remember running a, I think I was three or four years old, running a toddler mm-hmm. race in the Cranford Sports, which was like our version of the Olympics back then. Where, where were you at in your family in the pecking order? Yeah, I'm, I'm the youngest, so my okay. oldest brother is about 10 years older than me. And what, what type of athletics were you doing back then? Um, I suppose the same as any kid, I was just a sprinting like uh, shortest. So um, I would have started out probably competitively in community games over over 80 meters. So that was the distances under eight were 60 meters and 80 meters. And I was 80 meters. So it's my first uh, national medal was 80 meter sprinting. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> what age were you then? Um, yeah, I would have just experimented a bit um, growing up then. So we used to, my, my coach at home, would have been a long jumper by tradition. So he had the, he actually ha- held the Donegal record for the 100 meters and he was the national record holder in long jump. So Hugo Dugan. So he was, he was very much into the, the tacticals, the kind of technical events. So the kind of high jumps, long jumps, sprints, uh, even hurdles. Like we would have done a lot of the more technical events that probably other kids wouldn't have been getting involved in. So it was good. It was a good introduction to how my brain was wired then to to kind of figure out the technical elements and stuff so you're always competitive and you're always trying to break it down and work out how to improve yeah yeah exactly like i just i can still i remember all the coaching points when i was seven or eight years old like how to how to do a, a start on the grass when you're not allowed to wear spikes and you know all, all this all this stuff you had to deal with when you're eight years old <laughs> so yeah i was always always into kind of figuring events out and trying to trying to get the best out of myself as well. When we introduced into race walking then, because it's a bit unusual. It's not the, the normal sort of route that people take. Yeah, it would have been around, I think it was the under 
community games again would have been the start. So it's the the under thirteen was the was the first year, or was is actually the only year for race walking and community games. So it would have been around the age of twelve. So I was I used to do every event at my my local community games area. I used to be just running from event to event, and there was a there just happened to be this race walk on, and I was like, yeah, I'll jump into this as well. So I. I was, a, I was a bit of a hoarder of medals. I used to just love winning medals. So I was like, no, this is another medal for the collection. It doesn't matter what event it is. So I jumped in and won won the event. And then obviously you progressed in. So I went from the local area to the Letterkenny district, Donegal, then all Ireland's. And then I finished sixth in the nationals that year in the under 13 walk. So that, that was a kind of a more or less a full season of walking there. And, uh, yeah, it kind of got me interested in it. So, did you have a coach back then, the same athletic coach, or was it was there many yeah, principals carried over? I guess Hugo would have, because he because he was kind of a technical minded athlete himself. He he went off when he saw that I was interested in it, and he picked up some coaching tips from from other coaches in Donegal and brought them back to me. So he would have done his best to try and enforce the technical side of the event straight away as soon as he knew I was interested in it. So in that sense, you know, he was always very good that way. Um, and yeah, then I suppose the training progressed then. So it was, it's uh, nine, 900 metres was the distance back then. Okay. Um, he must have seen something in you then back then to actually go and invest that time into you. He must have seen um, some sort of spark like, uh, he just he just knew I was interested in it. I don't think he really thought uh, that I was going to be some kind of a world beater or anything. Um, I I was probably more people probably thought I was going to be a sprinter when I was younger, and then then I just drifted into other events and um, yeah, the walks was kind of I suppose nearly all my teenage years. Then I was into walks, and we had a massive. Uh, local club a volleyball club as well so i used to play two years of volleyball everyone kind of it was like nearly going into the army at home when <laughs> everyone did their two years with the volleyball club <laughs> under 15 for community games it's like the french le- legionnaires <laughs> yeah yeah so what what are the actual rules in race walking um yeah the the two basic rules i are the things that the judges will be looking for are the loss of contact which is obviously so you're supposed to have one foot on the ground at all times. Um, and then the second rule is the straight leg rule. So you have to have a, a straight leg on your forward leg when it lands on the ground. So when, you, when you're heel striking, the front leg has to be straight until your body goes in front of your leg, kind of. So you have half your stride, your leg has to be straight. And then obviously when your leg is behind you, then you can bend it to bring it through. Okay, then just touch on the first one then. So a foot has to be on the ground the whole time. So it's a bit different than, well, obviously it's different than running. Like, But running, you're trying to hit more of a, a four-foot sort of strike. Here, your earliest opportunity is your heel, I suppose, and your last opportunity is your toe. Yeah, I mean, the, the traditional uh, name name for walking would have been the heel-toe discipline. Right, okay. <laughs> you're, you're really, you're really because, because you can't lift off the ground, you really have to maximize your whole stride. So that means like your toe is on the ground for as long as possible at the back. And then you're really stretching with a full full leg at the front to get a heel strike as well. 
So you're really trying to maximize the distance between your, your like your your whole stride length has to be pretty much at maximum length. Are you, are you pulling rather than pushing, or is an element of both going on? Yeah, I suppose like because you're not really you don't really have a flight phase in uh, like you would in running. So I suppose running would be more of a pushing, like you're pushing to get into the air and have that flight phase. Whereas in walking, I guess you're pushing until your heel hits the ground, which is at the same moment you're pushing up. So you're pulling straight away. So you definitely use, you're, you're using way more rear chain. So your, your hamstrings and your glutes and your calves would be the main muscles. And then you wouldn't really use your quads as much because in running your quads would kind of nearly have an elastic effect in running where you're, you're kind of hitting the ground, your quads are taking that stress and then they're, they're pushing back to give you that energy again. Whereas you wouldn't have any of that in race walking. Yeah. It's not easy at all. Like it sounds like race walking sounds a lot easier than running. Like, and, but when you actually do it, like I tried it about quarter mile to the shop the other day, just cause I knew it was coming to talk to you to see what it was like. <laughs> and apart from being all over the place, my shoulders were bouncing up, my hips were going from side to side. Um, it wasn't a pretty sight at all. Like, um, but it was quite physical. You know, I found it a lot harder to flow and like to move and keep that sort of up. Would it be fair to say it's more physical than running? Yeah, you, you can get away with uh, kind of being a bigger athlete. So that's why I suppose it, it suits me. Like I'm, I'm 75 kgs, which is probably 20 kgs more than most marathon runners, which you, you probably might think is a disadvantage to have more weight. But because your whole body is being used like you can have you can have more weight because every part of your body is contributing to what you're actually doing so your your shoulders your your chest your your back your arms your legs your hips everything is actually working to maximum capacity whereas in running you you see probably a lot of marathon runners they almost run without using their arms at all you see them just their arms are just hanging at the front and they're not really using them so it's yeah, race walking is definitely more of a, a full body, full, full body event, and you can get kind of get away with being a bit a bit stuck or a bit heavier. And you have to use your arms a lot, like don't you? Because it's important. I, I have a small gadget for Garmin that measures your oscillation. I'm just probably getting that totally wrong, by the way, um, but it measures how much you bounce. And yeah, yeah. it correlates to your cadence. You know, my cadence is horrible at the minute. I'm not even going to mention what it is. Um, but I'm bouncing up too high instead of propelling forward. Um, in race walking, very much so. You do. You have to make sure you're not bouncing high. That's correct, isn't it? And so that you're, the energy that you're putting in is moving you forward rather than up. So how do you maintain that? How do you stop yourself from bouncing up? Yeah, well, I guess that's, that's part of the, the flight time as well. When you're running, you're you're kind of getting up into the air, so you're going to be kind of up and down a bit more. Whereas in walking, you're trying to, you're, you're using the length of your hips to, to get the distance. So you're, mm. it's almost a, a forward, it's a pure forward and back motion rather than an up and down motion. Is that a pelvic so twist? That, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of pelvic twist. So you're, again, that's part of trying to maximize the stride length as well. So you're, you're really trying to rotate around your midsection, around your hips as much as possible. And then using your, your hips, your glute muscles then to work the motion. But uh, again, yeah, it's, you would really probably not want to be getting too much up and down. <laughs> yeah. 
so your co- your core strength obviously is key but listen to you there about your hips like flexibility and core strength together must be key for those sort of long distances to stop you fatiguing like yeah i, w- I would do a last kind of pre pre-training just a, a lot of stretching before big sessions like a lot of stretching and activation just to make sure the hips are are fully fully loose and fully activated at the same time so it's yeah, it's it's a it's a tricky discipline you have to kind of be switched on all the time to the technical element of the event and yet still be loose like enough to maintain that flexibility and what about cadence then do you know what your cadence would be because it seems to be quick well if you're if you're running what is, if i'm saying 650 a mile what is your pb in kilometers do you know for 20k would be like around 4 12 per k okay just pulling it back from earlier on i thought you'll know the answer so <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's i think the the cadence of like a 20k walker is more similar to a 1500 meter runner than yeah. a marathon runner because the speed of your the speed of your stride has to be fast to get the overall speed because the stride length isn't as long so your the actual frequency of your stride is about more similar to a 1500 meter runner so that's another aspect of uh, the event you're dealing with as well like so you're you really are moving your legs at a faster speed again like yeah so how do you maintain your heart rate because your heart, heart rate must want to go through the roof but obviously you can't allow it to do that over those longer distances yeah well for me when i race 20k it's pretty much flat out start to finish like there's no there's not i don't have any tactics in a 20k because i'm slower than most of the other guys so i just have to go start to finish but definitely in a 50k you have to kind of you have to uh kind of look at the heart rates a bit more and kind of have a bit of have a bit of control the first first half of the race up to 30k maybe and then you know then you're just surviving on what what training you've done and instinct after that yeah, is that something you use then in your race strategy for the first like 30k is monitoring your heart rate just to make sure because all the different places that you travel obviously and the different temperatures has an impact on your heart rate and you don't want to blow up by after 30k is that do you monitor that for the first 30k or during the race you don't even look at it you're just used to it through training no i, d- I definitely because sometimes if you go into a race the the adrenaline can make you feel good and you can get carried away like so definitely and i suppose even more especially in in doha i was looking at my heart rates maybe two or three times a lap like <laughs> it wasn't spiking or going up or so it's uh yeah it's it's a because you're using so many calories as well like it's impo- it's literally impossible to go gun to tape in a 50k because you're just going to run out of energy like there's no yeah. like if you're going if you're going too fast for your stomach to absorb the calories that you need to finish the race you know that's it's a, <laughs> a massive factor so you have to train your stomach as well like so it's uh definitely a complicated discipline yeah there's a lot going on so 50k like even in a 50k run you're losing a lot of calories like you must use an awful lot more calories because your your body parts are moving a lot more and um, your heart rate's a little bit higher um how do you maintain that like throughout a race like what type of things do you fuel on in a 50k race um yeah you you have to work i suppose similar to a marathon as well like you have to pre preload to make sure your body is like maximally 
maxed out in terms of uh, carb stores. So I put on, I put on maybe half a stone in the last three or four days leading up to a race. So you're you're really like probably not feeling great at the start, like you're feeling a bit heavy. Mm. But um, then during the race, I like to cycle through. I have four different carbs and gels that I have that I cycle through during the race because even the the pathways the of digestion for certain carbs can get worn out. Like those synapses, those synapses can fatigue. So you're better off to take different types of carbs throughout the race because the different pathways will will keep the energy flowing in so it's there's a lot of uh, science to it as well that sounds like a whole new podcast in itself yeah yeah oh you'd have to talk to someone else about the, yeah. the real side that's just how it gets explained to me and i just nod my head and take the drink <laughs> you, you talked about there putting on weight in before you come into a race now i found that through i do long distance sort of running now as well i'm an endurance um sort of 50 60 mile races um, what I find sort of contradicts what I was doing in marathon training, whereas, you know, you used to try and get your weight down as low as possible, um, for race day and you found out you had no energy come race day. But any times I wasn't as disciplined and actually put on a couple of pounds before the race, um, I actually felt a lot stronger. And I did talk to a nutritionist before as well. And as she said, that was one of the hardest things that she had with endurance athletes was getting them to realize they need to eat um to be able to perform so it's a key yeah. it's a key thing like isn't it you said there you put on a few pounds there before you actually go into the race you need those stores going into the race because you you are going to burn a lot of calories would you know how, how many calories you would burn in a 50k um i've i've just had some data just from the the watch and stuff and it would be close to four thousand calories in, in a race so that's that's like two two days worth of calories in four hours so like it's a lot yeah that's and you can't, I, think, I think you can only store like 700 calories you know your your blood glycogen is like 700 and your liver is another 700 and then whatever's in your muscles your your actual carb or your carb load and stores in your muscles might be another couple of hundred and then you have to rely on your carbo load and your drink strategy on the day to make up the the other thousand or so calories that you're going to be missing for the race. <laughs> yeah, it's not. There is an awful lot going on, isn't there? Like to try and get it to come together. Um. So yeah. in your training, then, do you like your nutrition that you focus on? Do you stick to particular diets, like plant based diet or meats or? Um. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be too strict now with my diets. Um. Because. When we go training in different countries, you're exposed to different types of food and stuff. So you're, you're always kind of, it's more of a decision based diet. You know, you have to just pick the right options wherever you're going. Like, But in general, I suppose you'd always try and, you'd always try to have enough carbs like rice or chips or pasta or whatever's available wherever you are. And then you're obviously trying to get, you know, you're probably taking extra protein after training just to make sure you're covered and maybe a multivitamin in the morning, just to cover your bases for that as well. But in general, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't be really strict because I'm burning when I'm training, I'm burning three, four thousand calories a day. So it's, it's kind of like, yeah. but you can get away with having a few Mars bars as well. 
as I said to you before, you're like, you're the picture of health. And like, do you do a lot of gym work? Strength and conditioning sort of to build the core up? Yeah, we do probably more, I suppose, in the winter as well. We do two or three sessions a week in the gym. But like, I wouldn't, probably wouldn't go massive on the weights. Like just, it's more kind of, activation drills you know, making sure the body is switched on for training and stuff so you wouldn't really be trying to put on weight by building up muscle in the gym so you wouldn't really be lifting too heavy but you're just trying to make sure the muscles are ready for the load when you're going training because there's never there's never a day where i'm resting enough to really go at heavy heavy loads in the gym yeah okay you haven't got it in your schedule in the week what about flexibility then do you do anything to sort of improve that like swimming or yoga or anything like that um i wouldn't be wouldn't have a strict routine though but i i would obviously do my my pre stuff before training sessions is always a bit of stretching especially kind of hamstring i like to get the hamstring stretched out and then obviously activate them then afterwards so i'd like to do maybe 10 or 15 minutes more stretching and then another 10 to 15 minutes then of actually switching the muscles back on again so you're ready to go training but i wouldn't really have strict routines in terms of uh, swimming or yoga or anything like that yeah so just really the warm-up and the cool down being critical really yeah i mean you, you just have to be especially as a professional athlete you have a bit more time to dedicate to that kind of stuff so i suppose the normal person who's going out for a 30 minute run isn't going to sit down for 30 minutes and do activation before they do their 30 minute run <laughs> but uh, yeah as a professional athlete then you just kind of you just have to do these little extra bits just to make sure you're maximizing every training session yeah but it sounds like it is key in race walking though yeah it definitely is because your your technique <coughs> is so so important so when you're if you go out and you're not activated and you're tired in the evenings like you can just end up walking like rubbish like so and then that can feed into the next day so you're mm. you're really trying to be a hundred percent like in terms of technique all the time and especially in, in the winter when you're just, just doing the miles it can be easy just to kind of switch off and just try and get through it but you, know, you have to you have to always think about it in the back of your mind so we're we're banned they say we're banned from listening to music and stuff because it's a distraction from what you should be focusing on <laughs> There's a lot going on, as they say. Like, so heart rate training. Then, do you sort of is that something you incorporate into your training, is to try and get your body to get used to burning fats more? Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't really be that. It like just my steady stuff. I just make sure I'm not training too hard on my easy days. So I'd use okay. I'd use the heart rates mostly for that. But then when we're doing when we're doing tempo type stuff for speed work. Like I tend to go up more kind of off feel with those type of sessions. I wouldn't be too restrictive with the heart rate when I'm kind of doing tempo work or maybe longer tempo work if I had a 10k, a 10k hard effort. Or but if I was doing reps like K reps or 2k reps, it would just be kind of more off feel than heart rates. But yeah, burning burning fats or trying to get into fat burning zones isn't really a part of the training to be honest and you talked about tempo there somebody sent me a video the other day with you and aiden hogan from down in cork um he is a sort of a bit of a machine that guy like um but you're going absolutely flat out like what's what's the fastest that you would go in a tempo session 
Yeah, I guess something around what my 20k race pace would be kind of for anything kind of around 410k or would I wouldn't really go any faster than that because I'm not preparing for yeah, racing, okay. racing that fast. So that would be kind of be as fast as I would I would be going in my tempos. Um, but when Rob was when Rob was doing tempos and training for 20k, he would have been could be down to 345k or 350k. Yeah, that's criminal. So like you're getting close to sub six minute mile in there. Like. And the more you talk there, it sounds like the you prefer the longer distance the 50k rather than the 20k sort of discipline yeah i, ne- I never really had um a 20k career really uh, most athletes might do a few years of 20k and then move up but i kind of moved up i saw an opportunity in 2012 to get i just felt that i was more suited to the longer distance so i guess i did i think it was 20 23 when i did my first 50k which is probably a bit younger than most people mm. would transition. So I did my only major 20K champs would have been the World Student Games in 2011. So I, and even when I was doing that, I was preparing for a 50K that mm. September as well. So I wasn't really, even doing that, I still wasn't 100% focused on that 20K. Do you remember your first call up then to Ireland then in the 50K? <laughs> would have been the Olympics. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So how did that feel? How did, how did you qualify for that race? Yeah, it was at the end of 2011, so I had the World Student Games that summer over 20k, and I was targeting a race in Germany at the end of September um, for the 50k qualifier as well. So I'd only raced one 50k before that, which was at the start March 2010. So it would take me 18 months to wrap my head around doing a second 50k. So it's a there's a lot of learning to be. Like the first 50k I did was probably just, I just wanted to know what it was, what it was like to do a 50k. And then the second time I decided, all right, I realized how much specific preparation you needed. So it took me 18 months then to do the next one. So that was, uh, yeah, September, 2011. And I think I got inside the Olympic standard by just over a minute. That was a special day. Yeah. <laughs> the first time you'd done it then, what was not off-putting but what was so difficult about it then is it just was it real pain barrier going through that yeah like i didn't i hadn't trained specifically well i kind of half trained for it and then because i i didn't want to burn myself out as well training for my first 50k so my longest my longest training session leading up to that race was only 33 kilometers right okay so I got to 34k in the race and I was I, I started to fall apart so it was it was a it was a 2k lap yeah every every race walk is on a kind of a looped course or a lap course so yeah, every 2k is the exact same so you have very specific uh kind of splits you can take and you can you know if the split is off by one or two seconds you can whereas if you're running a marathon and your split is off by two seconds the course might be a bit different or you run more downhill or uphill, whereas in walking every 2k is the exact same. So I hit this 2k split at 34k, and my heart rates had gone up a couple of beats, and my split had gone down a few seconds. And I was like, "Oh no, this is <laughs> this is what everyone's been talking about." Because uh, I suppose in a, a lot of race walking, everyone says it starts at 35k. So when I got I got 34k, and I was like, "Oh, this is what everyone this is what everyone's been talking about." So the last the last 16k was absolute 
that was probably the definition of misery there no yeah it's a very repetitive isn't it which is very fatiguing on your body you know it's as you said there in the marathon you know uphills and downhills your muscle groups are changing all the time and given your sort of quads rest or hamstrings rest depending on the the elevation of the ground that you're going up to up and down you can sort of drop off the pace so you can actually push on a little bit harder um in race walking that's a lot it's a lot more challenging than that isn't it yeah you kind of yeah you pace yourself kind of up your own feeling i suppose especially in 50k you're kind of it's a it's a lot different to marathon running i said you know the, the new level of marathon running is just sprinting for two hours like yeah <laughs> the speed that those lads are going most people wouldn't be able to run one lap at a track that fast so it's really the new marathon is basically sprinting for two hours like it's so fast but in 50k you have probably be, probably because it's so long and you need so many calories to get through it there's not as much emphasis on going going to tape hard so it's it's, I feel like it's more like a Tour de France stage or something like that where you know, some people might chance their arm and break away at the start and then the rest of the group might just be hanging back and waiting later in the race to have a go. Like, so it's, there's a lot more tactics in the, in the 50k and definitely, well, having, having it on a lap then you're just, the, the technique is kind of the same. You're not really changing up and down too much. You probably have one, you're probably one point in the race where you decide you're going to you're going to go go for it and that's if it pays off it pays off if it doesn't it doesn't like yeah you're in big trouble so what was it like then getting the phone call for london 2012 such an epic um olympics for us yeah it was a it was probably a tough uh, a tough year because there was more athletes trying to qualify so in the same race i did in germany rob got his qualifying standard and um then Jamie Coston and Colin Griffin were also trying to get qualifying standards. So it was, it was a possibility of four athletes qualifying with only three spots. So it wasn't just one and done. So I had to go and race another 50K six months later in March. And Jamie and Colin were in that race as well. So I was kind of under pressure to finish first or second Irish in that race. And so I managed to... Uh, do that race and I think I got a PB by like six seconds or something <laughs> and the two Jamie ended up dropping out of that race and Colin got disqualified so I was I was kind of first Irish that was an un- unofficial trial for the Olympics then so I, at that point I had two A standards and so I was pretty confident that I was going to be selected after that okay do you remember how did you find out was it a letter or a, fo- a phone call um I think it was probably just uh, an email or something. Like, uh, <laughs> they just sent out an email on, you know, the last. I suppose n- normally for the walking events they select before everyone else. So the, the walk and marathons tend to be selected in May, and then the rest of the team will be selected maybe in July after the national champs. So, kind of get a, a letter at the start of May saying you're selected for the Olympic Games. And how, <laughs> but I'd I... already done two, so I kind of felt like. It was just an automatic selection thing then. Yes. How far before the Olympics was that you were finding out? How much preparation time did you have? Um, yeah, I suppose I, I suppose from, from March after I did the second A standard, I was pretty confident that that was going to be it so I could prepare 
from March until August that year. So we, and that, that would have been the first summer I trained with Rob as well, because they, there was a few, there was, I think, uh, Colin Griffin ended up getting the qualifying standard again. So there was three of us in the 50K, um, and there was two girls in the 20K walk. So it was five walkers that went to that game. So we had a bit of a training camp in Spain, kind of a joint camp. And I would have been training in England before that. So it was my first, my first kind of summer training with Rob. And, uh, you know, it wasn't easy. Like, <laughs> yeah, Rob's phenomenal. Like, so what, you think you're a superstar when you get the call up for the Olympics and then you go training with Rob and you're getting basically mangled every day. So, so Rob, <laughs> Rob Heffernan um phenomenal athletes 2012 he got the bronze in the 50k yeah yeah um, ended up with the upgrade bronze and then the following year he actually became world champion yeah he then became your coach um what was the difference in what you seen in rob when you went to spain and what you were originally doing because i think his his time for the 20k was 119 and so people people can to relate to that. It's like four, five k sub twenty minute five k's in a row. You know that's how quick he's race walking. Um, was was there anything in particular that sort of stood out what he was doing? Is it just more or just harder work? Yeah, I suppose he had a lot of speed on me as well. But like it was it was more maybe the how the training was planned out and how the how the training camp worked because. Even when we were we were training in Leeds, it was very much a weekly a weekly kind of training plan where you had certain sessions on certain days. Like Tuesday evening was always going to be speed work. Thursday morning was tempo work. Sunday was the long walk. Whereas when I went training was in Spain with Rob, then it was there didn't there wasn't a, a weekly plan. It was like you know three days uh, every three days we do this or every four days. So it just depended on how hard the training was. So the, okay. the the training and the recovery was more specific. Like, so you're you're training really hard, and then you're fully fully recovering, and then you're going training hard again. You know, three days later. So it was like three days, three days, three days, and then if you did a long walk, you might take four days before the next session. So it was like it was it was the weekly schedule was gone out the window. It's kind of a bit confused. You forget what day it is then. <laughs> It's very adaptable then, just on how you feel, really. You know, if you're feeling better, then you can push a bit harder. Yeah, well, the the point, the the training is kind of done. So even if you're even if you're still mentally tired or or physically mm-hmm. tired, you've you've had those three days. So man up and do the next session. Like so, <laughs> you mightn't feel like you're recovered, but you you're you should be able to go again. Like so, it's and then for me, because even the the easy days were so hard because. Rob was just he he was cruising five minute k's and or four four fifty a k in training and I was just so motivated going to my first Olympics I wanted to be doing everything with him so <laughs> probably my my easy days or what he was calling his easy recovery days I was still like pinned pinned to my collar like bait from the day before trying to keep up with him so it was like three weeks of absolute fatigue. <laughs> Do you think that helped but, you then? having him to sort of look up to um definitely because he's uh he's so passionate about the sport and he's always looking to improve everyone around him he's not just he wasn't just thinking about himself all the time so it's it's very much 
he was always trying to pass on the knowledge to me and <laughs> probably that year, that year he probably just let me learn a bit by myself <laughs> so i say i say he was enjoying pulling you as well though knowing rob yeah he told he told me after he's like we he, he was living in a different house to me with liam who was his physio and he was just saying we'd go home every every day just laughing at you because <laughs> <laughs> you were training so hard every day we were just like this fella's absolutely mental like <laughs> just trying so to hang were, on they were having a bit of a bit of fun off the new fella so but coming around for a full circle again so i have another young lad training with me so anytime he's struggling i just kind of <laughs> smile a bit <laughs> it's like come on <laughs> it must have been some buzz though in london like even the open ceremony i'm assuming you walked out with the irish flag like what sort of buzz was that yeah i was probably one of the few people to do the open ceremony as rob rob had done four Olympics or three Olympics at that stage. So he wasn't really bothered. <laughs> and, uh, some of the other guys, you know, they, I, but I, I just felt that it was going to be my first games and I wanted to experience everything. So I did, I went into the open ceremony and geez, it was, it was incredible. Like the, the energy, the atmosphere, um, was probably better than anything that I expected it to be. And then, uh, the next day, I think I had just an easy training session, like AK something like I can probably do in my sleep. And I, I ended up dropping out of the training session after 6K because my energy was just completely blown. Like, so I was like, Liam was on the bike next to me with the, during the training session. And I was like, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? <laughs> Crying. Like, and he's like, look, we'll just call it a day. <laughs> 6K into an AK and I dropped out of the session. And then I'm like, I have to do 50k in a week and a half like what's going on but uh i was worth it in the end i, I recovered the next day it was grand <laughs> but it's bound to play on you the pre pre race nerves you know you as you say they're a week and a half like if you see somebody cough in the corner you're like mm. you know so much can go wrong um during that period especially when you're in a heightened sort of anxious sort of state yeah i guess they kind of that kind of happened at the London 2012 World Champs whenever everyone got sick that year. Like, so it was a bit of a bump going around the, the hotels. So yeah, you're 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 very conscious of uh, kind of like going out and about because especially coming up to a, a race, you're kind of you're tapering. You have more free time. You probably want to be going out and about, like looking at London your first time away. Um, kind of interacting with everyone in the village, like athletes from other sports, you know, you're probably, you're probably loads of energy to socialize, but you have to kind of, <laughs> you kind of have to hold back a bit as well. Like, and just realize that you're there to do a job at the end of the day and you need to be ready to go for that as well. Was there anybody in particular that you've seen that sort of sticks out in your mind? You're a bit starstruck about. Yeah, it was, if we, if you go alphabetically, like Jamaica is quite close to Ireland, so the, I think it was the opening ceremony and Usain Bolt was with the Jamaican team just behind us. And he was the only athlete that had uh, security with him. Like it was incredible. Like all these top athletes, like Djokovic was there. Um, I think Federer was there with the Swiss team, just like a normal person. And then Usain Bolt was there with like four massive bodyguards <laughs> making sure 
<laughs> everyone staying away from him. And then he was he was pure cute out like he wouldn't uh, everyone wanted pictures with him and he just called all the girls in and then I'd be standing I standing there outside and he's like, Not you. <laughs> he was calling in all the girls from the Irish team and they all have photos with him and I am not so I I grabbed a photo with the Saffa Powell instead. <laughs> He did say not you though. That was okay. He did speak to you. I would take that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if he spoke to me. He was just yeah. he just kind of passed. <laughs> over my, and they find the next girl in the queue and called her in for the photograph. <laughs> well, he has that charisma and power, so I suppose can't say much about that. So, yeah. how did the race itself go then? Was it a good race for you? Um, yeah, it was probably given that, that it was my first big championship, so it was probably probably went really well. Actually, like I finished. Um, 29th on the day and then upgraded to 26th because the three Russians in that race got disqualified. <laughs> um, so, and I got, I think three minutes PB or something. So, okay. and the conditions were tough enough. Like it was 24, 25 degrees. Um, so it wasn't, wasn't like it was a good day or anything. So to get a, to get a PB in my first major championships at Olympic games was probably a positive positive sign for me and then i suppose it was after rob finished uh fourth on the day then so it was a it was a good day all around because well i actually thought rob would want a medal because the way the course works like i was coming i was going back up the course when he was finishing and he he just beat one of the russians and i saw the time when the clock was 337 and i was like ah oh, that's unreal he must have finished like I saw the first Russian come through for the gold and I didn't really see who was fighting for the next places, but I just assumed he'd won a medal like so for the last like 15 minutes of the race because I was still out there on <laughs> for another 15 minutes. Um, he, I just assumed he'd won a medal. And then when I was doing the interview afterwards, someone told me he was fourth and I was like, nah, you must be confused. <laughs> so I was like, no one finishes fourth and walks that fast. So I was like, it was pretty much the Olympic record was 3.36. But like he walked almost an Olympic record and ended up finishing fourth. So it was, it yeah, was that, that must be pretty frustrating for him then because he eventually did get third. Um, but it just goes to show like what well, he got robbed. His performance, his time that day would have won every other Olympics except the one in Beijing the, year, the four years before. He would have won. He would have won every other Olympic Games and he came away fourth. So it was... Like the performance was so good, like you know, in yeah. terms of what he did on the day, like it just. But he came. Happened to be. He ended up getting awarded third because the Russians obviously got disqualified. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it meant he missed out on standing on the podium in London in 2012, um, and that really is the the reality when things like that happen. Um, extremely frustrating for the athlete, obviously. And the 2012 was such a big Olympics because it's, I don't know whether it's social media or what it is, um, it's close to home as well. And we were really trying to drive a legacy, but it really lifted sort of athletics as a sport across, through Great Britain and Ireland. Yeah, yeah, it did seem to have, like I was living in the UK for the five years leading up to that. So I was even more exposed to it because I was living in the middle of it, like the Olympic torch relay was flying around the UK and everything it seemed to be on the news every single night where the Olympic torch <laughs> relay was going. So it was, it was definitely a huge buildup. And I think I was the, the first Donegal 
athlete since Danny McDade in the in the seventies or something. So there was a bit of a, a buzz around locally in Donegal as well about having someone competing at the Olympics. Um, uh, so yeah, it seemed to be a bit more, and then Rio was kind of a where where's all the atmosphere again? Like <laughs> it was a bit of a bit of a letdown to be honest. Like yeah, that's what I was going to say then. So you went to the World Championships the year after London. Um, you improved on your positioning as well. I think you were twenty fifth. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that was yeah. That was my first full full year then training with Rob. So that was another another eye opener, opener to train to do the full season and figure out how how to survive. How to plan out. <laughs> how to survive. I got I got very <laughs> very sick in January that year. He just buried me over the winter training like so I was probably sick for nearly three months that year and then I managed to come around in the summer and get another result <laughs> yeah so that's why I was going to ask then about Rio then 2016 great to get in the Olympics again what I was going to ask was what's what was the difference how did it feel how did the build-up feel compared to 2012 because it was a huge hype here and then all of a sudden the Olympics arrived and left yeah it like it didn't, it didn't seem to be like I, I was in Ireland for the opening ceremony. Like we didn't fly over to Brazil until like eight days before we raced. So we were, me and Rob were in a in a house in in Foda for a week preparing. <laughs> we just prepared at, at home, like because we we did our training in Spain and then we did a week in Ireland before we flew out to Brazil. Then so it was kind of weird to be in Ireland when the games were starting over in Brazil. But there didn't seem to be a massive buzz about it. Um, and then even going over there, like the, I think that the general idea of most Olympics would be the Olympic Stadium, the main Olympic Stadium and the Athletes Village would be like almost in the same complex. But in Rio, the Athletes Village was kind of like somewhere out on its own. And I think, I think the, the boxing and some of the gymnastics were near the Olympic Village, but all the main, all the other events were somewhere else. Like, so it didn't really. All the endurance athletes had to stay out in the sticks. Yeah, like it's, it was just kind of weird. It took so long to get around the city. Like the locals only got excited for the football. Like, <laughs> literally, like the Brazilians only cared. I think they played Germany in the final of the football, and that was the only time I felt any atmosphere. Like just walking around the city, like, mm. and uh, there didn't seem to be a massive buzz even the, the taxi drivers and stuff i was asking them like and they they were just like yeah we had we had the world cup here two years ago so yeah. you know, was, well no one really cares about the olympics here <laughs> they had the football world cup so that was all yeah. they cared about so how was your form going into that race then did you feel you were in better form that things you were building momentum yeah i was probably in really i felt like i was in pretty good shape going into rio um and probably even though I've improved again and I think I finished 19th, I probably felt a small bit like I underachieved that year. Um, maybe not by too much. Maybe I was hoping to get top 16. Um, but the race tactics probably didn't work out for me that day. Um, so I was still happy. 19th was still an improvement on the, all my other global championships. So it was kind of happy enough to come away with that with a bit more experience and I was hoping to drive on then for the next couple of years yeah you said your race tactics there didn't sort of 
work out on the day. What was the difference that day? Because the same race tactics you've trained for. Was it the heat in Brazil or? Yeah, well, the, the thing is when you're in race walking, you, you really don't want to be alone in the race because you're more <laughs> exposed to the judges if you're just in your own walking. So especially at the start of the race, you kind of want to be in a group. And I suppose they, there ended up being about three groups and I, I, I ended up in the third group and it was a bit too slow for the first 10 or 15K and there was too many gaps opened up then. And then by the time I got moving in the second half of the race, there just wasn't enough there wasn't enough time left to, to reel in the positions. So I, I think I still moved from 30th up to 19th in the last 25K. So I'm still picking people oh, off. That was good. But yeah. yeah, I probably just went off a bit too easy. And the group I was in probably just wasn't doing what I wanted them to be doing. <laughs> so. Do you find it nervous then when you're on your own? Because um, you talked about the judges there. They're, they're keeping an eye out and it has to be visual doesn't it, whether your toe is still on the ground before your heel strikes. Um, do you find that impacts you then if you're on your own rather than being in the group? Because you have to be more yeah. self-aware. It's kind of, yeah, you, you feel like they can see they can see everything when you're on your own, whereas if you're in a group, they have to look at four people or five people at once. So you're kind of like, not that it's kind of, sounds bad that you might be cheating or something, but you're just kind of, you're kind of a bit more secure in the group that yeah if you're if you're on your own for a full 50k the judges i mean the the, the lines are quite narrow at the best of times but if you're exposed on your own that can have another impact on how the judges are viewing your technique as well yeah because there's at some stage of the race for everybody everybody's in flight at some point you know i've seen photographs of race walkers all the time and they're they're slightly lifted but that's just a it's such a fine hair gap in between it sometimes and it has to be from a judge's point of view visual to the eye and not to the camera that's how close it can be yeah well it, it, there's a, a researcher over in leeds where i was training like brian hanley and he does he's done all his research and race walking and he's kind of narrowed it down to a, a point zero one so if you're point zero four of a second that's what the judges can start to see so there's like Okay. Point zero between point zero four and point zero five of a second is is where the the judges can see what you're doing. Like so, you have that, and point I think point zero four is like half the reaction time of a sprinter. You can have point one is the reaction time of a sprinter. So that's what the judges are trying to see half half of a reaction time from a sprinter is what what you're going to be off the ground. So it's when people see the photographs in still frames, it's you can see people off the ground, but in reality, that's such a small, yeah. a small fraction of time that it's almost impossible. Point one of a second. You couldn't do it if you tried to do it. So 2019 yeah. then, this was, you've had quite a build up and you had quite a number of races there that I did mention as well. Um, national champion, for example, and coming into the 2019 World Championships, like you've had this six or seven years of sort of momentum, just building and building and improving, building and improving. And Rob, as you mentioned there, has been a big part of that as well, um, pulling you along. Um, coming into that World Championships, you set yourself quite a high goal, didn't you? Yeah, well, coming into it, we would have 
I would have been kind of putting it out there that I wanted to be top eight, whereas I suppose Rio would have been my best result before that, which was only 19th. So there's quite a big gap. But like the two years in between, like the London World Champs, I got injured the week, literally like five days before the race. I pulled, tore my hamstring, and uh, and that that was probably the first the first year that I was able to do most of my training toe to toe with Rob, and I was I was really super excited to get on the start line in London for the World Champs and had all my family over there and everything, and then five days before the race. Jesus, hamstring was gone. Like so, I felt, I felt like I probably could have been top ten in that World Champs. Um, Rob ended up finishing eighth, and I was close to him in all the training sessions um, that year. So it was, it was kind of a bit devastating not to get a result after doing such good training, and then, then kind of Berlin last year, I had a stress fracture during the summer. My chin, so I just I cross trained for eight weeks, and literally did two sessions on the road, and still finished nineteenth in the European Champs. So I did my longest, my longest walk before Berlin was only twenty seven k or something like that. I did no no specific training, just cross training. I did some four hour training sessions on the cross trainer swimming so I was still training very hard but just not specific to the event like and still managed to finish 19th in Europe which is yeah. probably I think, <laughs> when I think about what I did to get in that shape with a, with a stress fracture in my shin and probably one of my best results ever like do you think that helps because I've heard that a few times you know people getting a pretty bad injury and then coming back so it helps let your full body get a recovery and sort of build that a bit more balance back into your body, I suppose. Um, I think it was probably more gave me a lot of mental resilience <laughs> mm. because I had I had my whole summer planned, um, like literally had this injury two weeks before all my summer training was supposed to start, and I had physios, training partners organised, so I went. I decided I'd go on the training camp regardless of the injury. So I had physio, I had basically full-time physio for a month. He was treating me two or three times a day and doing all my normal training routine, training in the morning, training in the evening. Um, so I, I did, I just continued with, you know, an, the athlete lifestyle regardless of whether I was injured or not. And I still got through the training block and managed to get to a point where I could go on the start line and uh, I, I, st I still felt like I could get some kind of a result and 19th was I felt was still very positive and then mentally mentally because the last 15k of the race was the night of the worst the slowest like I just crumbled because the training wasn't there and I just had the only thing me and Rob sat down before the race and he's like there's only one way you're going to race this race and that's go with the leaders until you can't go anymore so <laughs> at, at 35k into the european champ but no training done i think it was in third place and Jesus. then and then the last 15k he was like you're just not to give up like you can't there's no <laughs> so i ended up 
the last 15k was just murder. Um, so that gave me a lot of mental <laughs> resilience as well that I could cope with anything. Yeah, it's it can be horrible when you do a thing like that because um, you get overtaken quite a bit and you think you're going slower and slower. You're not actually going that much slower. They're just going a bit faster, I think. But it was like, uh, it was every lap was like just only let one person pass you on this lap or only let two people pass you on this lap. <laughs> it's like, and then you're trying to have little mini races with the people who are passing you out. Like, I'll survive 100 meters with this fella now and then I go back to just <laughs> survival mode again. Uh, was, but it, do, was, it, it does show you how much you progressed though because about four years before that you would have taken your arm off for that. You know, a top 20 finish. Um, and now you're just coming back from injury and you're still getting a top 20 finish. So it just shows you where your progression's been over the last four or five years. Yeah, like the, the European champs before that was Zurich uh, 2014 and I finished 16th and I thought that was the best, that was the best race of my career. Like finished, I, I did another PB in that race and absolutely mangled myself to get a top 16 and I, I thought it was an unreal performance. And then four years later, I'm 19th basically with a broken leg. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a lot of improvement in those four years. Yeah. But 2019, and it sort of built up to this moment, like the World Championships in Doha. Um, you finished sixth. Like you said there, you went in with a target of eighth. So there was a lot of confidence there going into that race to begin with. You must have had a real good training block in that. How did you get, because you also got married, didn't you? And was it married in June? Uh, yeah, at the very end of May, so 31st of May. Well, there was a lot of planning gone into this year, to be honest. <laughs> so we we bought a house and we moved into our house in May, or in, in March, sorry. And then basically two weeks after moving into the house, I was gone on a training camp. Yeah. Um, I was in the bad so, box there. Yeah, we were preparing for the European Cup. So I was, I think, the 19th of May. So I was, I was, I finished fourth in the European Cup in 2017. So I was. I really thought this was going to be an event where I could finally win a medal. So I trained pretty, pretty well for that race and ended up finishing fifth, but it was a close race. And even the, the Portuguese fellow who ended up second in the world champs was third in that race. And me and him were pretty much in a group up till 42 K. And then he just, he just managed to pull away in the last couple of K in that race. And yeah, so then I was obviously came back and well, I secured the, the Olympic standard as, as well in that race. So that was huge, huge pressure off. Like was that, that was basically the secondary goal of the race was to get the standard for, for Tokyo. Um, so a huge race for me really. And then two weeks later, got married and had a, so I basically had three, three weeks after that race or kind of wasn't doing any training at all. Like, so got married and we kind of went away for a week and then I had to go straight back training. Like, so there was no, there was no real honeymoon period after the wedding. It was kind of straight back into training and we ended up, I raced the national 20k champs at the, I think it was the last week in June. So like four weeks after getting married and I got lapped by the two lads. Like, so it was, it wasn't looking good for me at that stage, finished third at nationals after getting lapped and then another, I think it was 10, 10 or 12 weeks then from there until world champs. So it was a, 
steep uh, progression then from that race up to up to the Doha. Yeah, it just shows you what two or three weeks sort of out of training, how it just takes the edge off you a little bit, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, but you need. We'd always kind of plan a bit of a downtime mm. at that time of year as well. But, um, yeah, I put on. <laughs> I always put on uh, nearly a stone in the winter, like so. I'm always a bit out of shape this time of year. Okay, you make me feel better now already. So, 2019 then. So the six you came sixth in the world championships. How did you prepare for those that environment? Because it must be warm. Yeah, I tr- We tried our best to prepare. Um, like we trained in Spain, and at altitude in Spain, we went. I went to Sierra Nevada first, which was two two thousand three hundred meters, and it probably wasn't too hot there. It was only twenty four twenty five degrees. And then we dropped down to a thousand meters altitude, just an hour outside of Sierra Nevada. And then the temperature there was a bit higher. It's about 30, some of the days up to 35 degrees. And then I came back to Ireland for a week and then went back to Spain again, down to the coast to Almeria, which is more humidity. So that was trying to prepare for that as well. So it was about 28, 28 degrees with close to 90% humidity, which was kind of closer to what we were looking for in Doha. But when we got out there, there was, there was shock. Like, there was no way to prepare for that heat. Like, As soon as you walk off the airplane, you're thinking to yourself. I think that's a lot of people just probably mentally struggled just with the shock of just being there. Like, you know, even getting off the plane, I was like, oh, that week and that 10 days I just did in Spain were pointless. Like <laughs> I'm not prepared for this at all. Uh, yeah, but then you kind of, I was only in Doha then for four days before we competed. So I think a lot of people were kind of up the same mindset that, you know, it didn't really matter how, uh, how many days you did there. <laughs> like you're going to be, it's going to be tough regardless. But uh, we did, I mean, like we did as much as we could to prepare, but like at the end of the day, it was probably more, it was more what we did on the day in terms of cooling strategies and drink strategies that, that paid off. And what, what about your race strategy then, how you're going to attack the race? Because the guy that won it, um, I'm going to try and pronounce his name here, Yusuke Suzuki. Yeah, yeah. think of the motorbike, yeah. Yeah, well, that made it easy. Because um, he took off at the front, didn't he? He wasn't really challenged at the beginning, the Japanese guy. Um, it sort of reminded me a bit like the Japanese guy in Boston. I did Boston in 2018, and the Japanese guy, I'm definitely not going to try and pronounce his name, Yuki. I'm going to call him Yuki, that's his first name. <laughs> I'll only murder his second name. Um, but he went off the front and nobody went after him because they thought, ah, you know, we'll get him later on. But he just won outright in the race. It was very similar to that. Um, it must be a new Japanese tactic, I'm not sure. Like, but um, What was your own race strategy going into that? Yeah, I suppose Suzuki is a bit notorious for that. Like he's the, he's actually the twenty k world record holder. So. Okay. And even when he was racing twenty k's, he just goes to the front. Like he just a lot of speed. Kind of like a pre-Fontaine job, just gone <laughs> up regardless of the distance. So like, yeah, he when he went to the front, and I guess Johan Denise, the French fella, would be more known for that as well. As in the last World Champs in London, he just. After 5k, he just tore tore off, and nobody went with him, and he ended up nearly lapping the whole field. Like, Jeez. he was uh, so good. So, kind of the fact 
that he went off the front wasn't really a surprise. Um, it was probably more the fact that Johan didn't go with him at the start that was more of a surprise. And uh, yeah, my own tactics then were just because the training I'd done the three or four days we spent in Doha before the race, my heart rates in training had gone up quite rapidly, like even over 10k. So I wanted to kind of get a feel for the race properly. Um, maybe the first hour, like I was going to be like, no, just completely as minimal effort as possible within reason, like, and then um, we didn't really know what the pace, what would that, that would mean pace-wise, but it ended up being quite slow, like five, five minute Ks, I think nearly for the first 15 K of the race, which is my normal training pace at home. Like I'd, I'd have no bother getting out the door and doing five minute Ks at home, like literally roll out of bed and do that. Uh, but in the heat of Doha, that was, ended up being what the race pace was. So yeah, we just kind of kept it under control for the first 20k and then I just started going a little bit faster, like just testing every lap, like what what was two or three seconds a lap going to do to the heart rates and just crept up a small bit and then I'd hold that for another few k and I'd creep on again and I just kept increasing, increasing last last 30k of the race and then even I think the last... I think over the last 10k, I was probably the second fastest athlete for the last 10k of the race. Like so, we were, we were coming through strong at the end. So I just probably again, if there was another two or three k, like make it a 55k there, and I'll mm. come through a few more places. There. But yeah, now it worked out. To be honest, it worked out pretty perfect for us. And top six was a phenomenal achievement, and, and uh, pretty pretty pleased with it at the end. Yeah. I don't want to mention the end, really, but <laughs> you know I'm going to mention it. <laughs> so you thought, you moonwalked over the finish line. I'm sure you have you've heard of that a thousand times since you've come home. Like every every time you go to a wedding now or go to a, a dance club or something, everybody's going to be expecting you to do this moonwalk. You know. I know, yeah. Oh, I don't know where it came from, like, because there's no there was no planning. Like I thought I was going to be carried off in a stretcher, like. So the fact that I was able to moonwalk over the finish line was a, a surprise to me as it was to everyone else <laughs> I, i've actually done that myself you know um only because my legs were in cramp and i couldn't walk forward so i had to go backwards <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> yeah. it's happened it's happened like um so you've had a like an absolutely phenomenal year i talked about the momentum that you had you've had your honeymoon um you came sixth in the world championships you have an olympic medalist by your side as your coach in rob um you just held your Irish national champion over the 30k again just last week was it I think it was last yeah, week. last week and you've just been awarded the endurance athlete of the year and you're hitting the the right sort of age you know all those things coming together must be building your confidence for Tokyo yeah I mean the, the long-term plan even before the Rio Olympics was always going to be these couple of years so 2019 2020 2021 we were kind of looking at that three-year we were really looking at that three years as as the years to maximize results and not just be going there as a, a learning tool to be going there to really be competitive and stuff so it's really fallen into place like the long-term planning which is <laughs> very long term when you're talking about 50k like so most of the guys yeah most of the guys medalists are in their 30s or older like the, the portuguese fellas 43 was the yeah. became the oldest 
ever world championship medalist in athletics. So there, there could be another 10 years in it for me. Like. <laughs> yeah, when you see the likes of Gary O'Hanlon there in the marathon, you know, he's, I think he's 45. Um, you've got Ian Keith, who I'm actually podcasting in a couple of hours' time. He just won UTMB um, OMAM. And he's 51 years of age. And it seems to be your endurance sort of matures over time. It's not something that just sort of comes here and there. Um, it's not something that just sort of disappears in like your low 30s. Something that you hang on to. And that sort of race walking is very much, 50k race walking anyway, is very much about endurance, isn't it? Which keeps you competitive. There was some controversy at the beginning of the year around the 50k, wasn't there? And going into Tokyo, whether or not it would actually be an event. It wasn't going to be dropped from Tokyo, but they were talking about dropping it sometime in the future, which is still a possibility. Like so, for now, I think the only confirmation is that it'll still be in the next World Champs in Oregon in 2021, and then after that, the the fate of the 50k is uh, is undecided. <laughs> so, <laughs> could only be two more years left for me. Yeah, what what is the reasons around that though? Is it because they want to drop the distance down to thirty five k? Is that right? Yeah, they're talking about thirty thirty k or thirty five k. Um, uh, apparently the the new breed of, of athletic spans can focus for four hours, so they're going to have to focus for three hours and fifty minutes or two hours and fifty minutes instead, <laughs> which uh, I don't really think is much of a difference to be honest. Like. Is that is that the main reason then? Is just the, the length of time it takes to compete? Yeah, the the IOC think people don't have the attention span to sit down and watch something for four hours. There's a lot of things going on in athletics at the minute, especially around Olympics, that don't really make that much sense. Um, so there's no point even trying to put sense around certain things, I suppose. Um, I suppose the next focus then really is Tokyo. You're in great form coming into that. Um, what will you do? Is there anything you talked about going to Doha and the shock of stepping off the airplane? Tokyo can be extremely humid and hot. Um, is there anything you? Any, is there any sort of learning you're going to take from Doha to in, into Tokyo? Um, I like. I suppose we'll we'll definitely be in Japan a bit longer to prepare for next year. Like the Holden Camp, the Olympic Holden Camp is in uh, Fukuoka or something like that, some city in the south of Japan. Um, so we'll, we'll be, I guess, in the country a bit longer than we were this time around. So I think we'll just probably try and pin down the strategy we used in Doha in terms of cooling and stuff. And yeah, the, the overall planning for the year probably won't be that much different, to be honest. Like we'll probably, I might train in Morocco in the summer um, instead of Spain, just to have a little bit different environment going into next year but yeah the, the overall planning and the preparation will be pretty much the same so it's just about kind of improving on the little things to get get the improvements what do you think is your biggest challenge going into tokyo um japanese food the fact, <laughs> the fact that everyone wants to win the olympics is probably the big factor so you're you're, you're up against like no world championships is big but like especially for an event like 50k where you know you're only probably racing once a year at your best and then every four years so like everyone just turns up at the olympics at a completely different level like you know so it's it's uh it's definitely in terms of olympic games the 50k is is where 
you know, the Olympics is where it lives. Like, so everyone, everyone wants to be winning medals at Olympic Games, um, which is probably not too much different to other events in athletics, but they get more opportunities to race at other meets like Diamond Leagues or, you know, European champs and team champs and stuff like this. So there's a lot more options for other events, whereas, you know, 50K is pretty much built around the Olympics. And if, if it's not an Olympic event, it won't be, no one will do it, like, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Have you given any thought to what comes after the Olympics? Like, have you thought about, because you've built it such a great endurance space. You built your, well, you won the Athletics Award this year for being the best endurance athlete in Ireland. Um, you can actually move that across to any of the endurance sports you had. Have you have you thought 10 years down the road on potentially what you could do? Um, <laughs> not really. Have you, ever heard um, of, have you ever heard of the Paris Colmar? No, no, no. It's a 445-kilometer that's one that's one braid no gonna say. <laughs> yeah. It's from I think it's from Strasbourg to Paris. So it's well maybe let Rob know that one. <laughs> oh, it's a, yeah, I get the the original race walking would have been uh, kinda city to city stuff like back in the day. Like they had a they had a big race right I think it was Brighton to London and they used to just walk from one city to the other. So there's a there's a bit of a tradition that way in uh, in race walking, but I don't think they do much of it anymore. Yeah, well, that's one just to keep on your radar, 145 kilometers. I'll keep an eye out for you in about 10 years' time on that one, uh, after you've done the Olympics, obviously. Um, Brendan, thanks very much. We're going to wrap it up at that. I really appreciate that. Um, I wish you all the best and hope all your training goes well and that you sort of hammer it in Tokyo. I think Tokyo already is starting to build a good buzz, even more so than Rio. I shouldn't really say that. Like, It's really on the radar this, this time around, I think, especially the way... Irish athletics are at the minute. Um, it seems to be that the whole country sort of raised the bar slightly, which is great to see. Yeah, I guess like we've had, I think after the European cross country, it's been the most successful year in terms of medals for Irish athletics. And I suppose again, after the Rugby World Cup being in Japan and how successful that was, it's kind of nearly reinforcing the fact that Japan are gonna be embracing the Olympics as well. And probably, Probably the one of the few Olympic years where Irish athletes are going as genuine contenders. Like you have Thomas Blair fourth in Rio, and then Kieran McGeehan's obviously still moving up, racing PBs and top ten in the worlds. And, and and if Mark English can get get it going, like he's he's always a danger dangerous man to race against. So there's no reason he can't make a final or be competitive for medals as well. So. It is a huge year for Irish athletics, and hopefully, the, if I can inspire the younger generation, I'd be the old man of the group now. <laughs> 32 years old. Brendan, that's excellent. Thanks very much for that. Appreciate it. Cheers. Yeah, no problem at all. Race walking. Nothing worse than someone walking faster than you are running in a race. It's happened to me before. If I had that ability, I would enter races just to walk past people. 6 minutes 48 pace over 20 kilometers walking. It's just absolutely crazy. It's hard to get my head around it. Hope Brendan has a great year moving into Tokyo. He seems to be a man in form. And the way Irish athletics are at the minute, anything could absolutely happen. It's been a great year for the podcast. Just like to wish everyone a happy new year. I look forward to another year of sharing some inspiring stories to keep you going when the motivation is low. So for one final time in 2019, until next year, 
stay safe and keep on moving.